Well, it's so good to see all of you here and to sing with you, and uh, thank you so much, worship team, for, for leading us this morning. Let's see if I can get this thing clicking. And thank you for joining us from uh, wherever you are. If you're here locally or uh, maybe traveling, I know a lot of people have been using our online uh, service as they travel as well, so thank you for joining us. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We'll spend most of our time there, but also uh, you'll be looking up Titus and 1 John a bit later. If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back in the rapture next Saturday at 5 p.m., how would it change your week? Please know I said if, and don't start any rumor that Pastor Sid is predicting the rapture next Saturday at 5 p.m. If you knew he was coming back in a week, what would be more important to you this week than it has been last week? What would be less important this week than it was last week? Because that's the way we're supposed to live. Last week we studied what is perhaps the best known passage about the return of Christ, uh, known as the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll put that verse, those key verses up there in a minute. And then today we'll be looking at the other kind of the best known passage about the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as a few others. So here's what we learned last week. Jesus Christ is coming to rapture his church. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. It'll be noisy. And the dead in Christ will rise first. This is, first of all, the resurrection of all believers in Christ during this age. After that, we who are still alive and are left on earth, if it happened today, right, will be caught up, that's the rapture word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Isn't that amazing? And so we will be with the Lord forever, therefore encourage one another with these words. I hope every time you come across these verses, you are encouraged. And so we should be living encouraged in these days because of these twin truths that if we die during this age, we will be resurrected at this event. And if we are still alive when this event takes place, the rapture, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, today as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, as well as two other passages, we not only will understand a bit more about the rapture, but we will also see it applied a lot more in these passages. In other words, it answers the question, so what? What does it do to impact us today knowing that Christ could come back at any moment? How will it change our thinking this week? How will it change our priorities Maybe today. How will it change our emotions? Whatever you're thinking through, feeling, struggling with. How does the imminent return of Jesus Christ impact those things? So we are in the resurrection chapter, it's called, 1 Corinthians 15. So many times on Easter Sunday morning, I find myself either preaching from this passage or in some way referring to something here because... Paul the Apostle to the Corinthian church is laying out everything about the resurrection and why the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first of all, is so important, and then that is the basis of our confidence that we will also be resurrected. So picking it up in the opening verses, we'll just kind of touch base uh, of the context of 1 Corinthians 15 before we get to verse 50, which is our focus, where we start our focus. But if you look at verse 2, it says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached 
to you, otherwise you believed in vain. So the gospel, the good news, that word means, the good news that saves us is about to be presented, and this is what you must put your trust in. That's what believe means. This is what you must put your trust in, namely, verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. What's the first element of the gospel? Christ died, proven by his burial. And secondly, that he appeared to Peter, or rather, and that he was buried, verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, after that, five hundred more. So the gospel is two things, the death of Christ for our sins and the resurrection from the dead. Without the death and the resurrection, you cannot be saved. You cannot be confident of eternal life. But with the death of Christ for your sins and the evidence of the resurrection, you can be confident that your sins are paid for. So the rest of the chapter goes on to validate the reality of Christ's resurrection, but he has an interesting way of doing it, kind of looking at the, uh, the flip side of it, verse 14. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is useless. So in other words, if it didn't happen, there's nothing to talk about. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, your sins are not paid for. Your sins, you're still stuck with the penalty of your sin if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep referring to death. And Christ was the first one to be raised with the new, eternal, glorified body. But he's just the first. First fruits means there are other fruits. But Christ's resurrection is a visible, physical reality. He was really raised he had a new body. It's a visible, physical, witnessable event. Christ was raised, which proves that which is invisible, that is, that your sins are forgiven. And if you put your faith in Christ who died and rose again, you will have eternal life in heaven. So the visible proves that which is invisible, that is crucial and core to our eternal uh, security and confidence. So he is the first fruits, and then go to verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits was raised. Then when he comes, that is, comes back in the rapture, those who belong to him. So you see where he's going with this that there is a resurrection for all who believe in Christ. So the rest of the chapter deals with some more details, specifically answering some questions. Look at verse 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Isn't that a normal question if you think about a resurrection? So what is a resurrection body like? What kind of body do you have? And he, he says, how foolish or, or, or how silly. Let me, let me try to illustrate it for you. And so he, he has a couple of illustrations. Let me, with a, with, a, with a little bit of a bullet point thing here, try to walk you through this next section of 1 Corinthians 15. It all kind of helps us understand the body that you and I will have someday if you are a believer of, in Christ. The first analogy is that of a seed. And he says, the seed that is sown is different than the grain it becomes. So in the fall, in, in Kansas where I grew up, as you sow the seed in the fall, the wheat seed, it's just these little kernels, right? And then in spring, lo and behold, you have this wheat grain and then eventually golden grain standing in the field. So it's very different than what you sow and what you, what you get, the picture is that of our body. You, we, we, we put a body in the ground, and it's going to be raised to something glorious. 
He also illustrates it saying there are some things that God has created, tangible things. He calls them bodies here, but talking about animals and people. And, and then he says stars. And some bodies have more splendor than others, like, like stars are pretty bright. You and I aren't so bright. Stars are very bright. So there's a different kind of a glory to some things that God made. Then he applies that to contrasting our body now with our body then after the resurrection. This body is perishable. Our resurrected body is permanent. It's a big difference. This body has shame. All or parts of it need to be covered up, right? Our resurrected body is glorious. This body is weak. Our resurrected body is powerful. And then this last one is significant. This body is sinful. Our resurrected body has no sin. If you take a look at verse 44, you'll see that the words that Paul uses are, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, when you first read that, you might think this. You might think, okay, the body that is sown is something physical, and the body we get is not physical, spiritual, as if it's some kind of a a ghost-like something you can't touch. That's not what he's saying. Because we'll see that, in fact, our resurrected body is a real and physical body. But So what's the difference? These same two terms, natural and spiritual, have been used by Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he made this contrast. He said, the unbeliever is considered a natural man and the believer is called the spiritual man. There it was a contrast between unbeliever and believer. The difference is not about whether they have a body or not. The issue is whether sins were forgiven or sins are not forgiven, unbeliever and believer. And that is is more like the contrast of how he uses these terms here because he's saying the body we have now is the body in which we still sin. The body we will have eventually is the body in which we will not sin. It will be spiritual in that sense. So what's the bottom line, Paul, verse 50? I declared to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So this body, the one that bleeds and dies and is perishable, could not survive heaven. you You can't get there in this body as it is. The perishable can't inherit something that's imperishable. Perishable is something that decays. We get that. If you have some leftovers, the back of your refrigerator, you discover them about six weeks later. You don't even have to open it. You just dump it. Everything material decays. And this is a material body, so... That's the perishable, this body. There will be one that is not perishable. So he has answered a question, what kind of body will the resurrection body be? As we continue on in verse 51, he addresses a new issue, which tells us there has been a second question. And the second question relates to what about those who don't die but are raptured? So evidently, Paul has been teaching to the Corinthian church exactly the same thing he taught, we saw last week, to the Thessalonian church. Christ is coming back. Jesus said he's coming back. When he ascended to heaven, the angel said he's coming back. Paul and Corinthians and Thessalonians, and we'll see Titus, he's coming back. So now that we know Paul about the resurrection body, it's, 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 it's very, very different What about those who don't die? Well, he says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. So we need a new body also, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which means die. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. It just has to be. You have to have a different body in heaven. He calls this a mystery in verse 51 because what mystery means for Paul is new information. So previous generations of believers didn't know this. The Old Testament believers did not have this revealed to them. The prophet Daniel, who who gave us this amazing prophecy of the 77s or the 70 weeks and gave us this whole broad scope of prophecy we talked about some weeks back, he didn't know that. Jesus knew it, but Jesus didn't even reveal it to the disciples when he first talked about, I go to prepare a place for you, and I go to prepare a place for you, then I'll come back and receive you to myself. He didn't tell them about the new body. That is the new news. Here's the new news, and that is that those who are raptured, caught up together with Christ, will get a new body instantaneously. So the resurrection will be that time for those who have died. The rapture will be that time, but we will also get the new body. We shall be, the word is changed, changed, transformed, something different than the other, a, a different body is what he's describing. It'll be a body that no longer ages, no longer gets sick, no longer has handicaps, limitations, injuries, doesn't die. It'll be a new, glorified, perfect body. Is, it, is there any way we can understand, is there any example of a body like this that would help us to understand that? Well, yes, there is. Because of Jesus, who's the first fruits. Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus had this new body, which I really think is the kind we're going to have. Just as when he was on earth, when he became man, he had a body that was hungry and thirsty and experienced what we experience physically. Same way, we will have that kind of body that he had when he was raised. 1 John 3, 2, we'll look at that later, says that when we see him, we will be like him. One of the ways we're like him, I believe, is that we will have the same kind of body. So let's take a look at some passages that teach us about the resurrected body of Christ. So when he raised from the dead and he spent those weeks with the disciples appearing to various ones before he ascended to heaven, what was that like? It was a physical but glorified and eternal body. So that Sunday night, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jews, in other words, they thought if Jesus got crucified, wow, what could happen to us because we were his closest disciples? The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Was this just an apparition of some kind? You know, no, it's not. It was a physical, visible body, yet different, because he didn't open the door to come in. He just came and stood among them. It's a very real and physical body. Luke describes the same event that night with these words. Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. In other words, it's it's a real thing. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. It's like, how do you take that in that someone they knew died was really alive? He asked them, do you have something to eat, anything to eat? <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Is that a physical body? It's a physical body. But it's new. It's, it's different. But you can still eat in the resurrection body. Just never get fat or sick or unhealthy because of it. That's heaven right there, right? To be able to eat and not be unhealthy. A week later, another appearance. His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, telling you that Thomas was evidently absent last time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Same thing next week, right? 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. This is a real physical body, different. The doors are locked. That point is made each time. He just shows up. Sounds like you can sneak up on people in heaven. Maybe that'll be fun. But uh, you, can, you can show up someplace. Our mind is boggled by what it is, what it isn't, what we know, what we don't know. But it will be an amazing eternal existence. You could read a little bit more in John 21. It's the scene where Jesus uh, goes to the disciples who went back to fishing and he says, feed my sheep. Well, he made breakfast for them, loaves and, and, and fish, and, and ate breakfast with them, something very physical and real. Or you could go to 2 Corinthians 5. That one's in your outline, I believe. 2 Corinthians 5, talking about you know, this earthly tent compared to the eternal body or dwelling that we will have. You know, too often I think we have bought the cartoon version of heaven instead of the biblical version. And so we picture uh, maybe clouds and harps. I hope not, right? We're smarter than that. White robes and halos and whatever you've seen. In car- it's not that. We've got to think biblically about heaven and realize it'll be a very real, tangible existence, just different and absolutely perfect absolutely perfect. We will be changed. How long will that take God to transform our bodies? Verse 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, a word for blink. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed instantly. Instantly. Now, I'm not sure that that's saying that Everything that happens at the rapture is instantaneous because somehow there is to be an appreciation of uh, the command of Christ, the trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel. But when it is that moment for our bodies to be changed, it isn't like God has to really work at this and it's going to take him a while. He is a God who creates by the word of his mouth. It doesn't take him thousands of years to create the world through some evolutionary promise, uh, process, nor does it take him a long time to transform our body because he is the infinite, omnipotent God and he just speaks us into our new existence. A flash, a moment and we will be in his glorious presence. It says at the last trumpet, this is the same trumpet as we uh, read about last week in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the trumpet call of God. Now, there are other trumpets in prophecy, and, and, and some have, in their effort to try to picture the rapture at the end of the seven-year tribulation, have I tried to identify this with the seventh trumpet. If you've studied Revelation, it's in chapter 11. The seventh trumpet, maybe that's the last trumpet that's the seventh, last one there, but that really wouldn't fit. It wouldn't make sense in a couple of ways. Uh, for one thing, how in the world would that make sense to the Corinthians in AD 55 when John's revelation of the seventh trumpet wouldn't come till some 40 years later at the time of the book of Revelation? The second is that if you look at Revelation 11, it's a trumpet that is still uh, has to do with the wrath of God on unbelievers. This is clearly part of uh, the glorious return of Jesus for believers in this age. Note also that Paul, again, in verse 52, uses the pronoun we like he did in 1 Thessalonians 4, meaning that he expected to be part of this event, which tells us that the rapture is imminent. It's the next thing. Paul expected it could well happen in his lifetime. In other words, God didn't reveal anything that would have to happen before then. There have been 2,000 more years since then, but God makes sure that we are to live expectantly that it could happen today. It could happen whenever he 
God deems it should be. Verse 53 and 4 and 5 then tells us what happens to death itself. Let's pick it up in verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable at this resurrection, rapture, transformation of the body event, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Isn't that amazing? Death swallowed up. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It is painful. The sting of death is sin, verse 56, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Death will be completely gone, defeated. As amazing as this is, you've maybe read this before. Many Christians have read it before. We've heard about the rapture. You hear about it 20 years ago in some series, and then you hear it about again, and you, you were reading and you came across it. And maybe it's almost so familiar. It's like, hey, it's been 2,000 years. Who knows how long it'll be? What does that really have to do with me? We might be thinking a little bit like a, like a, house, like a high school student thinks about retirement, which is almost not at all right? Retirement. I don't even know what I'm going to do with my life. But if you are retirement age, or even if you're somewhere mid-career, are there some things you'd like to tell the high school you if you could go back and change some things? Because you see, we're living in those, those high school years, and perhaps, because we don't know how long it'll be, but would we have wanted to tell the high school me that, you know, if you studied a little bit more or you avoided some foolish decision or if you went to school longer or you spent less or you saved more or something could have been different. You see, we are reading and studying this today so that something could be different. And so whether the rapture is today, tomorrow, 20 years from now, or sometime after we died is really not the point. Someday we will join Jesus in heaven. And what will we wish we had done more of and less of? Already at the end of this chapter, Paul begins to apply this amazing event that someday, in fact, we're going to get the new body and be with Christ how should we be living? What did you see in verse 57? So let's move to the application aspect. Thanks be to God. Live gratefully, knowing this is not all there is. Live so absorbed in the anticipation of who you will be that you have incredible endurance for what's messed up now in any way. Live gratefully. Just start with no more funerals. We have a funeral here tomorrow. One of our friends of our, of our church, Alice Coulter, part of our church family in the, in the opening days of our church. With the Lord, there'll be no more funerals. There'll be no, no more decisions about life support. There'll be no more decisions about, about when do you give morphine and know you'll probably not be able to talk to your loved one again. No more of that. Thanks be to God who always gives us the victory. Reading on, verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. So they're synonymous statements. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Two issues. I think the first is about our doctrine. Stand firm in your doctrine and then be diligent in your service. 
Stand firm, steadfast, unmovable. I think he's referring to the doctrinal truths he has taught us. The gospel, it's the Christ died for our sins and rose again. The resurrection, Jesus really arose. The rapture, he's really coming back. Stand firm in these things. Our world will laugh at these doctrines. The exclusive nature of salvation is only by faith in Christ. There's not salvation through this religion, this religion, this religion, good works. There is salvation through Christ alone. The world scoffs and, in fact, hates that idea. The world will laugh at the idea that Christ really raised or that we're waiting for him to come back, seriously. Like Peter said, everything continues like it is, that the world's going to say that. No, the world will be interrupted. Stand firm. And then, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. So it's not enough to believe the right stuff and sit on your hands. One of the dangers of being part of a Bible church, if you will, we hold to the authority of the Word of God, we try to grow in our knowledge of God's Word. One possible danger would be that we would be doctrinally correct, but practically useless. Knowledge can sometimes puff up. I think we have a lot of right knowledge. Are we engaging it? Or is it like a, like a degree you earn that you never, ever use that information again? So are we praying for people about the gospel that saves us? Are we loving people who don't know the gospel because we know that's the most important thing they could ever know? Are we serving Christ faithfully because you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, what is the connection between that and the resurrection and the rapture? I mean, this would be true in any case, but why is it especially true in light of the fact that we're going to have a new body and live forever in heaven with Christ? It's because we know that we will be with Jesus forever. The rest of the world that doesn't know that, doesn't have that confidence lives entirely different. I think that's why there is such desperation about money and health and, 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 and enjoyment, pleasure, because this is all we got. Look at the last part of verse 32 in this chapter, this resurrection chapter. Uh, yes. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That was the saying of the day. And it really makes sense. If this is all there is, just try to grab for all the gusto you can, right? But no, we don't live that way. We're going to someday be with Christ and serve him forever. So if we will serve him someday perfectly, which we cannot yet see, we need to serve him now with what we do know and see. So how distracted are you from serving? How absorbed are you with self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation? Are these things distracting you from the service of the Lord? Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Turning ahead from where you are in the book of Corinthians, when you get to the T's, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, the T's are all together. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, describes the rapture of Christ as the blessed hope. Starting in verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's referring to Jesus coming the first time. The grace of God, right? It, referring to the grace of God, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, in, all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
Titus, verse 15, these then are the things you should teach. This is what you have to emphasize. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody despise you when you prioritize and teach these various things. He describes the rapture, verse 13, as the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul describes the appearance of Christ as being glorious, you have to realize why he is so passionate about it. I think one of the reasons he's so passionate is because Paul is one of the individuals on earth in his human body who had actually experienced and seen the glory of Christ personally, at least twice before that. If you know the story of Paul, he was called Saul as an unbeliever and on the road to Damascus, persecuting Christians, Acts 9, he was blinded by the light of the glory of Christ and had a conversation. And he would repeat that, Acts 22, when he was telling it to, his, to the Jewish friends who were actually kind of attacking him at the time, Acts 22. He repeated that story and told it again in Acts 26 when he was appearing before King Agrippa because he wanted them to understand something about the experience of seeing the glory of Christ. There's one other time that Paul, the apostle we know of for sure, experienced the glory of Christ, and that is in 2 Corinthians when he describes something that happened early in his Christian life that we could call a rapture, okay? 2 Corinthians 12, I know a man, Paul's referring to himself in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. It says that Paul, Paul says he was caught up. Do you know that he uses the exact same Greek word, which is actually only rarely used in the New Testament, to describe his experience there as when he describes it, describes the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Just as someday we will be caught up together, meet the, the Lord in the air. He says, that's what happened to me. I was caught up to the third heaven, caught up to paradise. I, it was so real, I don't even actually know if my body actually went or just, this has been an incredible experience where, where God, Christ was revealing himself to Paul. And it's, it's an amazing chapter if you just read through the chapter and the impact it had on Paul. Now, I'm not saying this is the rapture. Paul didn't, uh, at the end of this experience, have a new body. That was still waiting for him. He, he was still on earth. But he certainly is qualified to tell us about just how glorious it would be to have a personal exposure to the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he shares it passionately. He believes it should change the way we live. Let's walk through verses 11 through 14 a little bit um, visually, okay? Because there's a looking back and a looking up that is part of this passage. Let's, let's kind of paint our timeline here. And in the basic timeline, you, ha- you look back at the cross that Jesus died for our sins, buried, rose again, ascended back to heaven, right? Okay, that's past. And what's coming in the future is, we've been learning, the rapture of the church. And we like to draw it with a, a hook kind of a ladder, uh, arrow, because Jesus Christ comes and we rise to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. And so then we will forever be with the Lord. Where are we? I don't know exactly. I always like to picture us a lot closer than, uh, than what's already happened, all right? So we're living somewhere in this age we call the church age or the present age of the New Testament. Now let's look at our verse. Titus 2.11, the grace of God, referring to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That's past. We all know about Christ's coming and how he came, he died. And and that is to impact us. The grace of God is to impact us. How? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, live upright and godly, 
waiting for the blessed, blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we live in this present age, looking back at the grace of God that has appeared through the person of Jesus Christ. And we live in this present age, looking forward to the glorious appearing of who? Jesus Christ. And so our life is to be consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. And when your life is consumed with the person of Christ, the grace he gave us through the cross, and the glorious appearing of when he comes back, what's it supposed to do to us? Absolutely transform the way we think and live. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright and godly. This is a This is a total change of mindset. This is why we must live our lives utterly different than the rest of the world. Teaches us to say no. And then it teaches us to say yes to other things. When Priscilla and I are wanting to watch something in an evening on a streaming service, it is really hard to find something that fits number one that says no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You can just see by by a single picture of a title of a show or a movie, it's dark. It's dark. It's evil. Very often it involves occult things, witchcraft, and, and it's dark. And if it's not that, it's worldly passions. It's worldly passions. The term passions is usually in the New Testament translated the word lusts, and it refers to sinful cravings. Sinful cravings. The cravings in mind are, are not usually, you know, French fries, though I guess you could include that. Using the New Testament, when you find this term, sinful cravings, it has to do with either sensual, sexual cravings or else the craving for wealth and money and material things. Now, money and sex are not intrinsically evil. We know that they are gifts of God, but we also know that we can crave them sinfully. And we are to be sensitive, diligent to recognize those things in ourselves. How can we resist such a strong pull towards that which the world pursues? The grace of God teaches us that. When you look back at the cross, we realize that these very things that, uh, that uh, attract and addict us are the things that Christ died to pay for. And, and, and sin looks different through the lens of the grace of God. Sin begins to look repulsive instead of attractive when our eyes are focused on the grace of God. It teaches us to say no to those things, and then on a positive side, to instead live self-controlled, upright, and godly. Self-controlled, that's a person who is kind, not angry. It's a person who is humble and apologizes. It's a person who is non-critical, non-judgmental, self-controlled, has, has an, a, self, a, a spiritual self-awareness of, of what's going on in me. What's my attitude here? What's, what is really happening that is either spirit or flesh? That's what the self can person is very aware of all the time or, or repeatedly or keeps going back to that saying, you know, Lord, what's going on in me? And then the result is that we would be upright and, and uh, godly because we're living between the two appearances of Christ, the grace of God that appeared and gave us salvation and the glorious appearing of our Savior who loved us and and saved us. Turn with me to 1 John 3. 
First John 3, just before the books of uh, Jude and Revelation. Now we're hearing the same truth, really. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between what we just read and what John says in a different way. Anticipating the rapture should stimulate us to live pure lives. Verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This is like, it amazes him. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us, doesn't recognize and connect with us, often is repulsed by Christian and Christian things. The reason the world does not know us is it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. So we already have the status, but what that really means, we can hardly grasp yet. But we know, this is what we do know, that when he appears, that's the rapture, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. None of us have experienced that. We are going to be, be seeing him just as he is at that moment of his return in the rapture. And so, what impact should that have on us now? You see, we're so far, what John has said is the same thing Paul said in Titus. You look back and say, oh, what great love the Father has bestowed on us. And we don't know yet what it's really going to be like, but he's going to appear and we're going to see him as he is, the glorious appearing, the blessed hope. So what does that mean as we live between the two appearances of Jesus? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's let's walk through that a little bit. He's first of all amazed in verse 1 that the Father would love us enough to call us his children. In fact, he would lavish that love on us. What is so stupendous about that is recognizing our sin. It's kind of like he's saying, how, how crazy that a holy God would lavish his love on those who are so absorbed in sinful attitudes, actions that repulse a holy God. This is, this is incredible that he would lavish his love on us in such a way that he would actually call us, you're my kids. When so very much about us is repulsive to his very nature as holy. And so, he, so John's like blown away that the lavishness of his love and makes us realize how often we minimize our sin. Or as John said, that we say, I've not sinned. We make God to be a liar when we do that. I wonder if sometimes what, what repulses God most about our sin is not our sin, but that we minimize our sin. That we, we don't get it. What, what, what living by the flesh really does to the nature of a holy God. So it's, it's incredible, dear friends, now that we are children of God, and we don't even know how great it will be, but when he appears, then we'll know, because we're going to be like him. Like him how? I believe this is both physically and spiritually. We will be like him in this new body, like we studied, that Jesus had in the resurrection. That's one aspect, but what else? We should be like him because... We won't have any more sin. Jesus Christ is holy, holy, holy. And you know what we will be? Instantly holy. It's not just that we will no longer have pain or no longer have tears. That's sometimes the only thing we can... Well, at least we got that stuff out of the way. Do we realize that we will be holy? No more anger issues. No more lust. No more jealousy. No more bitterness. Resentment. Just holy. 
The fruit of the Spirit now, we know, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know. It seems to me we won't have the fruit of the Spirit because we will be in the presence of Christ. So the Spirit has to work to produce that supernaturally in us now, but we will be in the very glorious, holy presence of Christ, and we will be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, self-controlled people. Wouldn't that be incredible? Verse 3 brings us back to reality, though. Meanwhile, we are sinful, broken people in a sinful, broken world. But now we know what we should be thinking about. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Hope in the New Testament, that very word means confidence. It means something. The reason they use the word hope to translate it, we don't have a better word really. I think, well, though I think confidence would be better. It's something that has not yet been, and yet it's completely sure. Everyone who has this confidence about what will be, we will be holy, we'll be in his presence, we'll see him as he is, purifies himself. At first glance, we might think the word purity is about moral purity, it can include that, but it's actually the word holy in a verb form. Everyone who has this confidence in him sanctifies himself, even as he is holy. So recognizing the holiness of God, recognizing that someday we will be completely without sin, then our task today is to progressively address sin, which is not just saying no, but it's also living upright, godly, as Paul said in Titus 2. And as we think about the holy, perfect nature of Christ and our future, the show we were watching suddenly becomes repulsive. The angry words we were itching to say are stilled as we think about the appearing of Christ. The bitter spirit we've been hanging on to kind of deliciously seems so foolish. And the rights we demanded evaporate into insignificance as we think of the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. Everyone who has this confidence purifies himself like he's pure. So if you knew that Jesus was coming back at 5 p.m. next Saturday, how would you live differently? Let's live that way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you transform us by your word. Your spirit indwells us to create a longing, a desire, a passion for that which is unseen, that which is like you in the midst of a world that is in utter rejection of you, ignoring uh, who you are, your values, and, and pursuing evil. But Lord, we live in a blessed state, knowing what our future state is. So we live with anticipation of your return, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.